Hello and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Tuesday, November the 22nd, and welcome to Poll Position, the Hoover Institution's analysis of the 2016 election. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today, David Brady, a Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at Hoover. And it's always an honor and privilege to tap into the wisdom of Doug Rivers, a Stanford University political scientist, Hoover Senior Fellow and Chief Scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based online survey firm. Gentlemen, let's begin with a question. Where were you on November the 22nd, 1963? I was in second grade in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> I uh, was. Uh, I had a job at the Kankakee State Mental Institution, and I was teaching recidivist children. <laughs> yeah. And I was three years old and relatively oblivious, which is kind of a state I live in right now, 53 years later. Now, I remember them coming in with the news saying the president had been shot. Um, uh, and then by the time I got home, he had died. Mm-hmm. Right. So I mentioned the Kennedy assassination because it is a, besides the gift that never keeps giving for cable television, it is a wellspring of conspiracy theories, what ifs and might have beens. We look at the assassination, we talk about the loss of American innocence. We look at the assassination and we talk about maybe the 60s don't unravel the way it does if Kennedy somehow lives. And we look at it in terms of a context of why this happened. And sometimes there are simple reasons why bad things occur. In this case, a disgruntled 24-year-old, 24-year-old man trained by the United States Marine Corps in the art of shooting buys a cheap rifle, takes three shots at the leader of the free world, and one of them is fatal. So sometimes there are easy explanations for complicated things. You guys have been looking at the 2016 election. <laughs> I was wondering where this was going. <laughs> I was afraid where it was going. It always leads to something, but a complicated affair was the 2016 election. There are elaborate explanations for what happened, and there are simple explanations for what happened. Guys, give me your simplest explanation for what happened. It was rigged. <laughs> Interestingly Second. enough, the people who think it was rigged are not the ones that thought it was going to be rigged. Yeah. Um, These would be the same people who now want to change the Electoral College and they want to direct uh, democracy and so on and so forth, right? They're Ox Scott Gord. The number of emails I've gotten for people saying there was vote fraud and the election was stolen from Hillary Clinton has... Uh, well, the, number, the numbers in the YouGov poll were 20% believed that the election was rigged and 25% weren't sure. So that meant only 55%. Thought it wasn't rigged. It's an amazing, amazing number. Mm-hmm. So is it safe to say that we can put the American political system in the same column of lack of institutional confidence as financial systems, religion, sports, you name it? Just one more, one more victim of institutional confidence. Well, what's remarkable at the moment is how hardly any institution has much confidence right. if you look at the poll data. Uh, And is that just a consequence of the media environment we live in that is enormously skeptical? Um, You know, during the 1960s and so, the credibility gap um, seemed to be specifically related to things like Vietnam and Watergate and so forth. Uh, But now in the age of social media, there's always somebody willing to throw out a piece of conspiracy theory, fake news, uh, whatever. yeah, so I, I, 
you know, I think we may be looking at a thing where we're going to see permanently low levels of confidence. Mm-hmm. Dave? Um, I, don't, I don't know whether that's, that's true or not. One, uh, I mean, if you look at the trend, it would, it would look to be the case. But, right. I, and, you know, it's, for me, the question is, suppose you hadn't had essentially 20 years of pretty low growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of this, a lot of what drove Trump voters is uh, low growth. In, in the long run, it, we don't. I mean, I have no causal data on this, so it's just speculation. But it seems to me, low growth. Uh, as, as you get low growth, people begin to change their attitudes about what what the future looks like for them, what the future looks like for their children, mm-hmm. or what the government's doing. And uh, so, the last time you had sort of confidence in institutions was in the '80s under Ronald Reagan, pretty high growth. So, for me, the counterfactual is: suppose we'd had growth that averaged around 3.2 percent. I don't. I don't think you would have seen this. Yeah, I'd like to dissent from the 20 or 30 years of low growth. Uh, you know, we had a relatively mild recession um, in 2000, 2001, and then a quite severe one in uh, 2008, uh, nine. Um But what's happened is people have turned this into a narrative of, uh, you know, a generation of no growth, right. of flat incomes. Uh, and there are parts of that that are... Uh, have some truth to them. That is, if you look at... Blue collars? Well, so uh, if you look at wages of uh, working class people, they've been relatively flat over the last That's my point. Uh, But, of course, that leaves out the fact that um, there's been an enormous increase in fringe benefits, particularly for health care. So that's a larger fraction of income. Um, and secondly, uh, taxes have fallen uh, on working class people over this period, uh, so that many now uh, don't pay federal income taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the narrative, uh, and furthermore, at the individual level, while if people of the same age and uh, have seen relatively flat incomes, certainly compared to historical norms, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't disagree with Dave on that, Individuals have had their incomes rise over this period by a significant amount. Right. Some. Um, no, I mean, the, the normal thing is incomes go up as people go from age <clears throat> 20 through okay, middle age. Okay. Um, you know, so the picture of uh, you've got somebody out there who's uh, had the same income over the last 25 years um, is not true. Uh, and then the, the third component that's ignored is that the things you could buy in, say, 1990 and the things you can buy today are quite different in the way that we account for real incomes. It doesn't fully uh, measure all of that. Well, now, I, I agree. That is not an argument any politician no. can make because yeah. Yeah. it would seem complacent. Yeah. So to me, so to me the post-tax, it's true, post-tax, uh, post-transfer, incomes uh, have grown, but they've grown much more slowly for the bottom 75 or 80% than they have for the top 5, 10%. So Silicon Valley's great. We're doing great. But you go to Kankakee, Illinois, or Middleton, Ohio, and you give them that story about Doug's story there, and then I want to run against him. Uh, because well, you would clean up, and Donald yeah. Trump showed you could do that. Right. right. Uh, but, I, but there's a but, reason for it. Their incomes, so health care, so my brother in Kankakee, Illinois, his health care, he gets health care, and it's pretty good. But 
it's better they don't than see Stanford it as a benefit. They don't see it. They don't see it as a benefit in that sense. It's yeah. your your healthcare. You go to the doctor and blah blah blah. It's not. It doesn't translate into being able to go out next Saturday yeah. night and go see the uh, Cubs ball game or go see the Bulls. You can't. Right. Yeah. So the two thousands have been. Uh, poor performance for the economy overall due to two recessions, one of which was quite severe. It's taken years for us to come out of, though we're now out of that and above where we were before. Um, it is the case and uh, that it's not the top 10%, it's the top 1% mm -hmm. or the top 0.1% that are doing astronomically well. Um, one of whom was just elected to the presidency of the United <laughs> States on a populist platform with absolutely zero content about how uh, he was going to fix these problems. Um, you know, so I, there's, there's a bit of the, the point I want to make is there's a failure of confidence of elites to defend. Uh, there is a way to prosperity, uh, which is uh, okay. what um, international trade, right. uh, uh, technology, uh, immigration, all these things are part of, and there's a way to the national ruin, and uh, that is uh, trying to be an autarky and yeah. uh, close ourselves. So I don't, I, don't agree, I don't disagree with that at all. I think, he's, I think he's absolutely right on that. And I would modify my original point. So it, it hasn't been flat growth, but it's at least perceived by people as that in 2007, eight, that, that kind of that kind of set things off and the elite trust in the elites. Uh, measured in a lot of ways. How many people think the people in the government are crooked? Right. All those things shot up after 2008 and have not gone back down. Right. Yeah, but one of the paradoxes is that Bill Clinton left office very popular and Barack Obama is leaving office very popular, both leaving uh, with relatively good economic performance at the end of their terms. Right, but you uh, do see a disconnect between Obama's personal popularity and then you look at Obamacare, which runs, I think, about usually 10 15 points lower than the president's approval rating. Right. Right. So it was a transfer. Uh, yeah, so Obamacare was not designed to be politically popular. No. Um, you know, it has, uh, it's basically a set of transfers from uh, young workers uh, who are Democrats uh, to uh, older working class people who are Republican. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there are 20-some million people who are currently participating in it, uh, receiving some benefits and are receiving sharp increases in their premiums. Uh, so it probably doesn't even have them uh, terribly satisfied. Um, you got to divide that between Medicaid and, and the exchanges. And, um, but they're not, I agree, they're not, the people in the exchanges are happy. On the other hand, eliminating that benefit may turn out to be uh, less than popular as well. Right. Speaking of not satisfied, there is the question of votes still being counted in this country. We were talking about this off-air before we went on, and I think, Doug, you said there what still a million and a half ballots sitting in California yet to be counted. Arizona has provisional ballots um, as well. And, and, this gets and, in the and this gets in the question of where Hillary Clinton is going to end up in this election. And she is, the last we look, she is closing in on 65 million votes, which is what Barack Obama got in 2012, which is more than enough to get the job done. So answer me this riddle. How is it that she can get as many votes as Barack Obama did in 2012 and yet do far worse than he did in the Electoral College? Yeah, so there are a whole bunch of reasons there. <laughs> um, 
the first, let me do give the, us the sort rigged, of, Give us the rigged give, one Give us the first. magic bullet. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me do them in sort of decreasing order of importance. So the first thing is that third-party vote um, tripled uh, between 2012 and 2016 mm -hmm. uh, that went to neither candidate. Right. Um, so we're going to have about 135 million votes cast, and um, third-party candidates are going to end up on an order of 3.5% mm -hmm. of that. Um, so uh, that's one place where the vote uh, dissipated. And it's unclear at this point whether that was Clinton vote or uh, Trump vote. Um, the, it, because the group's relatively small, you need a lot of data to figure out who switched. Um, the second thing was um, maldistribution of the Clinton vote. She ran up huge victories in California and New York. Uh, she did considerably better than uh, uh, Obama did in Texas, and that didn't move a single electoral vote. California, sorry to interrupt, in California she's about 2.5 million votes ahead, and that's going to keep growing. <coughs> Nationally, though, she leads by, what, a million and a half votes right now? Something like that? Uh, she's up by 1.3 percent at the right. moment, so that's a little over a billion right. and a half. And my... Pr my best estimate is she'll end up at about 1.7 or so. So California alone is going to account for her national advantage in the popular vote. Yes. Um, so she managed to lose uh, almost every single one of the eastern battleground states. Right. Um, I think New Hampshire she carried, but um, the rest she lost, and she lost some that weren't considered or. All, uh, Wisconsin was not considered a battleground state. Minnesota was not considered a battleground state. She nearly carried Minnesota right. and lost Wisconsin. So what happened in those places? Um, and uh, there are two possible ex – well, first, we know the national story, which is the white working class, that is, in surveys, the people we measure as being whites without a college degree, uh, broke heavily towards Trump. Uh, he outperformed Romney in that group. Um, and so there's a story of switching, and people have looked at it and see um, that uh, Trump doing considerably better than Romney in sort of suburban, rural areas in the Midwest, mm -hmm. uh, in the set of states that he flipped, which were Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, uh, Michigan, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin. Um, so uh, were, was there widespread switching? Uh, were there new voters? And I don't think uh, there was much of either of those occurring. Uh, from the registration numbers we've seen, we did not see any surge in Republican registration. Uh, what we saw was that Trump did better in, in places uh, where there were white working class voters. And I think the explanation is due to turnout differences. So if you look across those Midwestern states, what you see is that in places where Obama won a majority, uh, so these tend to be urban areas, they tend to have a lot of blacks, millennials, and so forth, turnout was, um, was down, and often down significantly, three or four uh, percent. In areas that uh, Obama lost, that Romney carried, um, turnout was up substantially. Uh, well, you, you should use the numbers, your own numbers, which I'll give you. Uh, the, the numbers he showed were in the five states that flip plus Minnesota, mm -hmm. in counties that uh, Hillary Clinton carried by 70% or more, turnout was down 1.7%. Uh, 
and in the counties that Donald, in the same six states, in counties that Donald Trump carried by 70%, turnout was up 2.9%. So you got an exact reverse effect. Turnout's up where the Trump mm -hmm. vote was and down where the Clinton vote was. Yeah, and uh, the other thing I would mention is that those data came out in the New York Times in an article David Leonhardt uh, wrote on Sunday. Um, I got a, somebody on Twitter said, well, you, you've ignored the fact that population is up 1% to 3% across these states. So there are more registered voters now. Right. And my initial reaction was, well, yeah, population grows, but it grows pretty evenly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I looked at the data. Uh, it turns out population doesn't grow evenly. In the places uh, where Trump won by big majorities, population was flat to yeah. down. Um, so turnout went up in places where population was, wasn't helping them. Yeah. And that exacerbates what happened in the uh, Democratic areas <coughs> where population often was up 5% and turnout was down 5%. So that's telling you what a disaster the uh, Clinton campaign was had in, in terms of meeting its turnout targets. Right. Well, the other interesting thing is that uh, the notion, among, at least among professional political scientists, was that uh, the story is that in each one of these elections there's always a genius. It's Pat Caudell for Jimmy Carter, and then it's Worthland for Reagan, and right. Carville, and so on, uh, and Karl Rove for Bush. but. Where was the, where, I mean, they spent unbelievable amounts of money and had troops on the ground, but the vote, it didn't work. Yeah, so the Clinton campaign had essentially the various teams that worked uh, on the Obama analytics team. Right. Uh, so Civis Analytics and people like that that were very successful in 2008 and 2012 um, that pursued the strategy of you target a narrow set of states, you spend no resources outside of there. So Wisconsin was outside of that, so there were no trips by the candidate to Wisconsin. Right. Uh, Michigan wasn't, though. They went to Michigan. Yeah. They did. They did, but they tried to, Wayne County, for example, Wayne County alone is the difference in that election where she right. underperforms, I think, sixty or 70,000 votes <coughs> versus Obama. It's not obvious that trips would no. have helped. No. Uh, it's not like you go to a a state and you immediately <coughs> flip a bunch of voters. I no, saw Donald Trump actually in one of the post-election things. Um, he was speaking at a rally in I think it was Wisconsin and he asked the people how many people had voted at his final rally and they all raised their hands. hands. Right. So it meant that he wasn't <laughs> getting a single extra vote. No, uh, no, the voice the voice <coughs> in the Democratic wilderness, you know, hindsight being 2020, the voice in the wilderness is Bill Clinton who, as we see in reports coming out of her campaign, was saying for months we don't have a message. Yep. We need to have a message to run on. I think I read a report saying the Clinton campaign trotted out 84 different slogans to test at some point. They just could not they could not put an idea behind her candidacy. They tried to do it on data, yeah. science, yeah. and well, all the that. One, the one thing well, they that, tested everything very exactly, rigorously. Exactly. Well, the one thing that Obama was, uh, the Obama's improvement for 2012 was they uh, had they you know they have a lot of information about voters and they uh, actually matched people to the voters and they sent people out to actually talk to them matching yep. and that was supposed to have made by some estimates uh, a couple percentage point differences they did the same thing this time but uh, well GOTV has changed enormously with early voting so the rate of early voting means that uh, there are many fewer voters to get on election day. Uh, it, this, 
probably is helping Republicans uh, who have, uh, you know, voters who are easier to mobilize and uh, you can get to do things sooner rather than later. Um, those but the model of sending buses around and knocking on doors and harassing people on election day until they vote, that's well, increasingly can, becoming Right, but a, the candidate matters here, right? I mean, the, the yeah. fact is that uh, you can do all those things, but Obama, Obama moved people to get out and vote, and I don't think Mrs. Clinton did. And Trump moved them to get out and vote yeah. also. So you know, the stuff that was being attributed <laughs> to analytics, to organization, to yeah. GOTV right. and targeting, yeah. Um, in 08 and 12 may have been due to the fact they had a candidate who had a, uh, a good appeal. And then in 2016, they had a candidate that didn't, and the Republicans did. Right. So somebody is going to make some very good money polling for the Democrats in the next year and asking this simple question. Barack Obama is involved in five consecutive elections. In 2008, he collects 69 million votes, a record, and he's swept into office. In 2010, he runs on the behalf of Democrats saying, vote for this person, this person's a vote for me, and he's rejected. The Republicans get the most seats in the House since 1938. 2012, he runs again at the top of the ticket. He gets 65 million votes, swept back into office. 2014, he goes out and says, a vote for this person is a vote for me. He loses the Senate this time around. In 2016, he's not on the ballot, but he goes out and he says that a vote for Hillary Clinton is a vote for my legacy, and voters reject Hillary Clinton. So the magical polling question is, why doesn't the pixie dust transfer onto I have people? never heard an explanation for a question I once got giving a talk, and the question was, can you explain to me, Professor Brady, why... President Obama is at 56% favorable rating, mm -hmm. and 70% of the country says we're going to hell in a handbasket. That seems to be that the guy rowing the boat is about to take us over the falls, <laughs> or has taken us <laughs> over the falls, and you've just answered it. <laughs> I didn't have an answer, but I could say it's up and down. Is it 71% of Americans or 71% of people who watch Fox News on a regular basis? <laughs> no, it's, mm -hmm. it's 60, the country's in the wrong direction. It's about, what, 65%, something like that? Track, track, track. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, two to one. Yeah. Um, so there's an interesting difference, I think, between Democrats and Republicans. So Republicans think things are Just going one. well when there's a Republican in the White House and Republicans control Congress. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats, even when they have control of the White House and possibly control of Congress, still are upset with the um, state of the economy because rich people are rich, mm -hmm. uh, whereas Republicans don't have a problem with that. Um, so, you know, I think that could explain how you get these wrong track numbers, yet uh, approval of Obama. That Obama is fighting, in the Democratic view, is fighting this entrenched uh, system and uh, that they generally oppose, whereas Republicans are not you know, don't have a big problem with the system, at least traditional Republicans. Now, in 2017, I know you two gentlemen will be looking at another continent for politics, and that is the old world. This will be Europe. A series of elections are going along. To those listening to this podcast, I encourage you to go to Hoover's Twitter site, where we're going to post a column for you to read. It's written in March 2016. It's from a publication called The American Interest. The title is, quote, Globalization and Political Instability. The author is one David W. Brady. And, Dave, what you talk about is a parallel between what is going on at present in elections and what happened between 1850 and 1890. Please, please explain. Uh, well, I, the article starts with about the political instability in the United States, the flip-flopping, that sort of right. thing you just talked about. Obama wins, he loses. 
and it goes back to um, sort of when when um, Bush got elected to his second term. This is what, uh, so you're, our colleague Mofi ran, he calls it a majoritarian institute. Yeah, so their talk was that, okay, now the Republicans have a majority, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then to Obama, and then you get the Carville writing then books saying what well, de- Democrats will rule for the next generation. So, and, he, and I went back and said the only other time you could find this amazing amount of flip-flopping was the 1870 to 1890s period, year of no decision. And what was common to both is globalization. Right. And so, in uh, if you looked at the U.S. in 1850, two most common occupations were farming and household servant, and by 1900, what had happened was uh, those jobs, uh, many of those jobs had gone, changed, and uh, people were, many more people were now working in factories in urban areas, large-scale farming, large-scale and exports, right? So so the result was an unbelievable disruption of people's lives, uh, styles, etc., and and the United States Came out of it, went went along with the push to uh, capitalism across the at least one third of the world, and, uh, and, and so by 1950, uh, that industrial class uh, were now blue collar workers who uh, had pensions, they had all sorts of benefits, they had reasonable salaries, they were middle class. Then in the 70s, uh, people began to automate those jobs, and all you have to do is walk to any construction site. And you, if you're at my age, you can see the differences. So the, the bottom line is those jobs began to disappear, and as companies began to do supply-side management, what happened is the jobs went, and parties had, to find, had a harder time finding a coalition. So the Democrats would try to put together professors and blue-collar people. It didn't work out. Blue-collar people right. liked to hunt, so on. And that, had, that occurred across uh, all, all of Europe, that uh, parties began uh, – the, the, the politics of the 50s, labor, anti-labor, which could be multi-party Christian Democrats uh, versus socialists and communists in Italy, and so on, whether it's multi-party or two-party – politics was party of the left, party of the right, or anti-labor party, right. and uh, that politics has disappeared, and there's been nothing to replace it, and in my view, no political party has uh, been able to solve the problem. I thought the person that came closest, and I think I said this in the article, was Germany, right. and as we can see, I probably shouldn't have said that, because the immigration issue so we, has now hit them. We look across Europe and we see in Britain the rise of a, a Jeremy Corbyn, who is anti-nuke, he's anti-NATO. We see in Denmark the rise of an anti-immigrant movement. We see elections coming up in 2017, France, Germany, yeah. Italy, Austria, which are all of the same element, which is a yeah. rising frustration I, against the political I do class. want to point out one, one thing about these parties. The, these parties are, are anti-immigrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're certain uh, anti-free trade, but right. they are not uh, anti-social benefit. Right. Uh, they are uh, the the French uh, Front National in France has all kinds of programs that are uh, benefit farmers and others. Uh, the People's Party in Denmark, same thing. Uh, they're not, uh, and that's and that uh, is kind of like the Trump thing point Doug made earlier. He's not just anti-immigrant, he's in favor of all sorts of things. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see from Trump the traditional conservative cut uh, programs aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch of the dance between Paul Ryan that really wants to get a hold of entitlements and Donald Trump that wants to spend a bunch of money on 
I don't know, stimulus, I think it's called. So two questions for you. Yeah, that's a very, that's an exceedingly that's important point, point, I think. Yeah. That's a dance that's going to be, uh, everybody's going to have to watch. Exactly. Um, the other distinction I would make between what's happening in Europe and what's happening here is that um, European countries tend to be small, um, and so trade is a fact of life. Right. Um, so uh, it's... The liberal international order is unpopular. The bureaucrats in Brussels yeah. are unpopular. Mm -hmm. But trade itself, uh, yeah. very few Europeans think uh, they should stop trade. That's an important uh, point. I immigration, um, there's a virulent opposition to immigration on the right, particularly right. Syrian immigration, which Angela Merkel is champion. Um, but uh, the left also seems to acknowledge that uh, restrictions on free movement of people are is something that's needed, um, where you don't see that uh, in America. The, the left is opposed to trade, the right is opposed to immigration, and Trump is opposed to both. Let me say, we did a survey, a YouGov survey uh, in 2015 of seven countries, and uh, just a point on what Doug says is absolutely true. So we asked people what their position was on immigration. You could say the level of immigration, too much about right, not, uh, or uh, seven, then there was a seven point scale where one was I'm doing everything I can to get them out of the country, and seven was I'm doing everything I can to integrate them. So we asked people what their position was, and then we asked what their party's position was. And in every case of every party across all seven nations, the voters were right of their party. On the, even even the the voters for Front National were further right. They placed their party further left. Right. So that it was an early harbinger of the fact that, that this is a quite a disruptive, uh, a potentially disruptive factor. Right. It worked in Brexit, worked in the U.S., and I think it's going to come to play a role in Italy with five stars. It's going to play a role in right. France with Front National. I think you mentioned in your column, Dave, that uh, Front National polled at, I think, what, 0.2% back in the 1970s yeah. or something yeah. like yeah. that. So it's phenomenal. So two questions for you. Number one, uh, Breitbart, which is the house organ house organ of the Trump campaign, Trump world. <laughs> now with the White House, I understand. The White House, yeah, now, now with an office in the White House. Uh, they are expanding into Europe. They're setting up European uh, outlets as well. Do you think that Donald Trump would dare interject himself into European elections? If Vladimir <laughs> Putin can play in a U.S. election, will Donald Trump play favorites with the European outcomes? That's question number one. Yes. And question number, then question number two is I see a candidate running in Europe right now. And she is both the embodiment of the political class, and she is also, unfortunately, the poster child for frustrations with immigration. It's Angela Merkel. Is Angela Merkel the Hillary Clinton of 2017? Well, first on Trump, uh, the first British politician that he spoke to uh, was not the prime minister, but Nigel Farage. Who campaigned for him, actually, in Mississippi and places yes. like that. Yeah. So uh, but after the, the election, the he did a hour-long meeting with the... Uh, former head of a small fringe party in Britain, right. um, which doesn't bode well for the Trump execution of foreign policy. No. Um, the uh, and as you say, uh, a few months ago I was in uh, Germany and mm -hmm. and uh, discussion of people were very interested in what was happening in the American elections and very worried about Trump. And I erroneously told them not to worry, um, but the assumption was. Uh, at the uh, uh, in a few months, 
the leaders of Germany, Great Britain, <coughs> and the United States would all be women. Uh, how things have changed in a short period. Uh, I don't know uh, whether Mr. Mr. Trump will uh, comment on that. Uh, he seems to have two different personalities, one when he's right. in front of an audience and two when he's on the Twitter account. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't know that. But I do think uh, Mrs. Merkel, who I always sort of admired as a politician because she seemed to be able to straddle the middle and make compromises and get reelected, I think she is in considerable trouble. And those of us who sort of do this professionally, we underestimated the extent of the vote in Britain. We underestimated the strength of the vote in, uh, for Trump. And I am very reluctant at this point to uh, overestimate the vote uh, in favor of Ms. Merkel. Yeah. While the 2016 polls in the U.S., uh, weren't so bad, and the ones in Brexit weren't so bad. They have taught us humility about predicting the <laughs> outcomes of close elections. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, burn twice, I'm not going to uh, make a prediction <laughs> well, about what's going to happen yeah, in Germany. So, you know, there was this question that uh, we got a lot. Fortunately, I was able to push most of it off on Doug whenever so, I could. Paul Doug Rivers. The, well, well, I mean, he knows more about polling than I do, obviously. So he, uh, but a couple times I got stuck. And uh, I, my view was, well, we weren't so far off uh, in that she did win the, she did win the general election. We, so the kind of mantra is, well, we got the national election right, but state polling isn't so good. Right. But you, you think of it like this. It, look at the media reaction. If, if 100 and, I think it's something like 140,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin change, mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton is the president. Yeah, the number I heard was 55,000. That's... Uh, uh, well, you might be able to work yeah. it some other way, but the number is it ain't many votes. And, and so the point, so the real point of that is that then, then we would have rejected racism, sexism. I mean, the media, yeah. the media can only interpret far left and far right, apparently, because the distribution of the votes in the U.S. was exactly what it is. And, right. and because it 120 or 55 or whatever it was changed the election, that doesn't change anything about the country and how people feel. So we're seeing the binary outcome of the election yeah, exactly. interpreted as a huge movement. Um, and if anything, uh, you know, the Trump coalition, this, that is working class whites, uh, evangelicals, um, is a relatively shrinking coalition. Um, so it's yeah. in the long run, uh, they've got to generate either considerably more enthusiasm among those groups or they have to find some other groups uh, to make up the difference. Yeah, there, there's campaigning and there's governing. And so, we're done with the campaigning. And it seems to me on the uh, it seems to me on the governing front, we have a lot to do. And by the way, for whatever listeners we have, uh, we are uh, hoping to get some of the economists here and uh, some other people elections to start talking about what a Trump presidency might look like because I, for one, can see uh, prospects where he does very well uh, with the economy, uh, doesn't talk, uh, and 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 is calmed down on trade and right. such issues. Uh, you could see one where it goes the other way, but uh, but the idea is we have a lot of people here who know about economics, and uh, we're going to try and get them to talk about what it might look like. What do you think his initial popularity rating will be? 
Well, I was going to uh, point out that there has been a number, I think uh, Politico put out some numbers last night, mm -hmm. which uh, has him at about 46%. So up substantially. Right, but it also has his negatives at 46%. So the country... That's so down substantially that's from down where substantially. they were a few so weeks ago. I maybe perhaps as a reflection, just people may not like the man, but they respect the office. Uh, that may yeah. be true, but I got news for you. That is the lowest start for a president uh, I can right. think of. It's amazingly low. By the way, within, so this was a poll by Politico and uh, a Morning, group called Morning Consult. Yep. And uh, so yeah, it's it was four, student. 46 favorable, 46 unfavorable. Uh, that's uh, that's unfavorable and very unfavorable lumped together for yeah. 46. Um, this also drive Pew put out numbers on Monday, which had 96% of Trump fans as, quote, hopeful, and 7% of Hillary Rodham Clinton supporters feeling the same about Trump hopeful. Yeah. So we're still, <coughs> we're still divided. Yeah. I so mean, the usual pattern is that the president's uh, popularity is relatively high to start, but it's right. been decreasing over time. Yeah. So there was an era where a president would start with 80% yeah. approval, right. and no president starts at that point. Yeah. Uh, Trump's going to be starting at a lower level, but I do think you the know the voters in the middle 50. are giving him a shot and aren't going to, you know, they're going to wait to see what happens. So it raises a lot of interesting questions as how he approaches this. For example, he um, has uh, been taking meetings with a woman named Tulsi Gabbard, who is a congresswoman from Hawaii, mm -hmm. a big Bernie Sanders supporter. So that's mm -hmm. a sign that I'm willing to listen to the other side. You see him, you get tired of the team arrivals analogy, but he is taking meetings with the likes of Mitt Romney. Uh, oh, now, he hasn't mm -hmm. gone completely, or he hasn't gone to John Kasich and people yeah. like that, but he is trying to show he's bringing people in the tent. But at the same time, you also see him reaching out to his base with uh, just sort of periodic periodic mm -hmm. tweets, angry tweets, for example. Why would he pick a fight with the cast of I, Hamilton? I do have a... I do have a I do <laughs> he have can't a, resist it. I do have a comment on that, and that is, you know, uh, he has to appoint roughly 4,000 people. Right. And uh, I was talking with John Cogan, uh, who was in the Reagan administration and some stuff in the Bush administration, and he said maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred jobs that are exceedingly important. Right. And uh, if you look at the part of the Republican establishment that was for Trump, what was that about eight, eight people? So if he doesn't listen, I mean, he has to listen to them because where is he going to get the appointments? They have to come from people who weren't for him. Right. So I don't, uh, so I mean, I think that's a good thing that he's right. doing it. But so what you have to see is he has to be willing not just to take a you know, prominent Republican and put them into a state or defense or treasury, but right. also let that person bring in their people with him. Exactly. Now, it's going to be a balancing act because yeah. this gets to the question of draining the swamp yeah. and Republican establishment. But uh, I would just point out that he's trying to do several things at the same time. And the Hamilton as much as we joke about the Hamilton tweet, he is doing that because he's trying to stay in touch with this base because nothing so angers Trump voters than the idea of some arrogant people on Broadway, you know, being being mean to Mike Pence. And good news, Dave Brady, there are a lot of Hamilton tickets available all of a sudden. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it and I don't wish to see it. Uh, but that can't be true, can it? No, it's uh, they have started a movement to um, to, uh, to cancel going to boycott Hamilton. So my guess is that that'll really really affect. Uh, I think he tried to do because none of them were going anyway. I think he also tried to uh, at twenty five hundred dollars a ticket. I yeah, believe. yeah. He probably have as much of luck as his uh, trying to also kill the iPhone at one point. Remember, yes. he was going to going to punish Apple. Yeah, who's yeah. going to do that? Uh, Trump. At one point, he, he told people not to buy iPhones. You're kidding. <laughs> he, was, he was upset at Tim Cook and Apple. Yeah. I don't remember that, but yeah. it's all put your now. phone away. <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of things that we thought weren't effective that right. may have been effective. It's very hard to figure that yeah. out. 
Um, so I'm, I'm reluctant to go one way or the other. On I mean, that. regardless of how you feel, it uh, seems to me uh, the next three to six months are going to be a very, very interesting time. Right. I can see a scenario in which he's successful, and you can see ones in which he's not successful. So final question, we'll wrap up this podcast. As you're looking at Trump and polling and data on how he's doing, what benchmark we use 100 days, six months, a year for in terms of presidential accomplishments. At what point, Dave and Doug, do you look at the polling evidence as to how this president's connecting with people? Well, I'm looking at it uh, right now now because he has a higher hill to climb than any president you can think of before. He was elected with such little goodwill. Right. Um, does he pursue a base strategy, which is to play to that and uh, t- not to worry about uh, trying to broaden the base? Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, does he look like a more conventional president that probably wouldn't be terribly popular, uh, but would avoid the uh, you know approval ratings in the uh, in close to the single digits. I think for him it it hangs more on what uh, he's able to achieve economically because I think the people who... So President Obama had exceedingly high expectations from people about what he would achieve, and in part he brought that on himself by the kind of campaign he made. But Donald Trump promised to make America great again, and the people who... um, the people who voted for him, people who didn't even like him but who wanted change voted for him over Mrs. Clinton. So I think he has real pressure to make a difference in their lives reasonably quickly. I don't think it's three months, but a year, year and a half, if they don't see much, he could go down in the polls. Well, I think there's an alternative, which is a more marketing-based thing, which is to say I was going to... Uh, attack immigration. We've done some sort of construction on the Mexican border. It's probably not going to be a wall across the whole width, but, you know, there'll be a fence in a place and so forth. And you um, have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and he says, I've delivered on that. Um, the uh, He can appeal to the Republican base with a tax cut, and it'll drive Democrats crazy. I don't know how it will play with the public at large. Um, in terms of trade deals, they can renounce various things uh, and, you know, declare victory. Um, right. You know, his chances of actually materially affecting huge numbers of working class people and their standard of yeah. living in four years, much less right. one or two years, is next to Well, but I, my view is that's what, that's what they're looking for. Uh, and, and the notion that... Uh, that this will come. That this will come. I think it's hard to do that. He could. But you can give he, people attention. You yeah, can offend yeah. the people that uh, they don't like. Um, I think that's what you're more likely to see. One, one can imagine a world in which. So the circumstances that are positive for him, he, energy costs could go down. Uh, regulation could go down. That's good. The market's already up on that basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stimulus ban might may create some job. Oh, certainly create some jobs in the short run. And the tax cut will be liked by business. Corporate taxes go down. The probably the. Uh, uh, value, uh, and not value-added tax, the um, tax pay investment tax will go down, and that could bring. But if he does something with China, right. or he puts a uh, 25% uh, import duties on Mexican goods, all of that economic effects will be, in my view, kind of wiped out. So um, 
we, we just don't know. We have to wait and see. Right. No, sounds good. So I, I would barely predict, I dare to predict that he will, first of all, do a series of executive order signings just right, right away. Makes, looks dramatic, makes the base happy. Yep. Second, he's going to move on taxes. Uh, again, it's going to show he can work with Republicans yep. to get that done. He'll take the That'll abuse pass, from yeah. Democrats, but he'll get that done. He's going to do a Supreme Court nomination. He'll do a Supreme Court nomination, and then he will do infrastructure. He'll try to do infrastructure. Why? Because he'll put that in the guise of the economy, but he'll also mm -hmm. try to sell that as, look, I can be presidential and I can work with both sides to get this done. And you guys are right. That's going to be fascinating to watch because why? It is hard to do infrastructure without it turning into a Christmas tree of spending. All right. Yep. Bill, do you think he can do taxes in the Supreme Court nomination? He obviously has the votes to get them passed. Uh, but can will those be political winners for them, for him? Can't uh, tell on the Supreme well, Court. All right. So the tax thing is essentially going to be another version of the book. Bush tax cuts. Right. And the Democrats have learned to be very effective in opposing those sorts of tax cuts. Right. Um, they aren't going to have the ability uh, in the House to do much of anything to oppose it. But in the Senate, they can uh, oppose, essentially strip the upper income portions of those tax well, cuts. Well, they'll just do it. They're going to do it in a reconciliation bill. They right. can't. And the Supreme Court. Well, you still, the question is how it gets posed. Yeah. And the Supreme Court nomination, again, I think they'll be able to navigate the um, the filibuster problem if they have. I even think if so. If you listen carefully to what Chuck Schumer, the new minority leader, has to say, he says that, look, it, we plan to vet. Uh, uh, cabinet picks very carefully. We will certainly vet a Supreme Court pick very carefully. He has said he is not going to to filibuster that person. Trump does have one ace up his sleeve in terms of in terms of mm -hmm. nominations to the court. There are four to five Democrats who are running in red states in 2018 senators, people like Joe Manchin, senators in right. North Dakota and other states. I don't think they want to get bogged down in a Supreme Court fight back with their constituency. So it yeah. might be it might be easier. In other words, Democrats might yeah. see that they're not united on that. And he as long as that pick is not seen as crazy unreasonable, they might just they might fold on that. Well, I think you'll win it, yeah. uh, but I do think in terms of, like, feeding the Democratic base, right. the opposition to the Supreme Court nomination is going to be a big deal. Yeah, I think uh, within that, probably the Jeff Sessions nomination is going to be very interesting to yes. look at to see how hard the Democrats fight on that because Damn. that bogs down on for them on one issue, which is civil rights. But then secondly, the fact that he's a senator is the They passed, the, the Democrats passed the rule last year that cabinet appointments have to only have a majority. Right. And the, and the Republican senators, 52 Republican senators, there's going to be no defections on Jeff, Jeff Sessions on that issue. Yeah. The Democrats can jump up and down and ask questions, but they're all they're gonna they're all gonna pass. Right, but when you ask what are flashpoints for Democrats in terms of a fight, what are they? Abortion is obviously going to be one. Right. Women's rights, health rights. The second is going to be civil rights, yes. and then the third one's probably going to be Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on economic unfairness. Right, right. No. They won, didn't they? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they did not. Well, gentlemen, I hope you have good Thanksgiving plans, and it sounds like we have a lot to talk about in 2017. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to Pole Position, a Hoover Institution podcast. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover's Daily Report. It keeps you up to date on all the ways Hoover fellows are making news, their studies, analyses, and commentaries. It'll arrive in your inbox every business day. You can also find us on Twitter, and our Twitter handle is at HooverInst, at HooverInst. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. On the behalf of my colleagues, thanks for sitting in with us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, 
please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.